Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, it's Tuesday, December 5th, and Tommy Tuberville has thrown in the towel. You know, uh, he didn't really say why. What changed? Why did he suddenly decide to release every military promotion that he was holding up? Oh, oh, not all of them. Oh, let's be clear. If you're a four star or above, no, 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 he's not going to sign off on that. But if you are uh, up for a promotion to three star or less in the military after a full year of doubling down and saying he was immovable on this. He has moved. God, I would love to know. I sure hope somebody has a source, and I would love to know what led to this. I, you know, he's renowned. He really is renowned as being one of the dumbest members of the Senate. Um, there's been reporting today when, of course, this big announcement was announced that um, reporters have been interviewed by anchors. And they're saying things like he didn't really seem to understand uh, some of the issues that he was weighing in on. He didn't seem to understand um, how things worked. Not that he disagreed or he had some moral objection. He didn't get it. He did not get it. This is what happens um, when you say, ah, he was a good football coach. I bet he'll be a good senator. (laughs) Um, Tommy Tuberville is now no longer going to object to hundreds and hundreds of military promotions. After a full year of uh, saying that he would never, ever give in. And when a reporter asked him about it today, he said, well, you know, it's kind of a draw. They didn't get what they, you know, because, you know, the military, what he was objecting to. Let's back up, Joan. The military doesn't pay for abortions. But if you're a woman in the military and you are stationed right now in a state that puts severe restrictions on your right to make a choice for your body, the military will give you the time off and facilitate your transportation to a place where you can get the kind of care you want. That is what he objected to. The military never has and never will do abortions. All they would do to say to a female officer is, well, you know, um, something happened to you. You ended up in a way you don't want to be. Um, we will facilitate your getting you getting the health care you need. And, you know, the military wasn't like doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They were doing it because what woman, what young woman is going to sign up for military service if she knows that that military service comes with the potential of an unwanted child? You know, I mean, hello. Um, it was a recruitment issue. But uh, Tommy Tuberville didn't seem to understand that. I would love to know what happened behind the scenes to change his mind. My guess 
is that a bunch of his Republican colleagues sat him down and said, look, 2024 is coming up. Lots of us are going to be running for reelection. The balance of the Senate, the balance of the Congress hangs hangs right now on how this 2024 election is going to go. And you are giving our enemies fodder to use against us. You're giving them ammunition to shoot us with. I wonder how tough that conversation got. Did they say to him, look, you if you want to do something stupid that doesn't affect the rest of us, go, go do it. But if you're going to do something that's going to drag us all down with you, we promise you we will primary you and you will be a one term senator. So if you like this job, you like walking around in your nice suits and your fancy haircut. If you like this job, find a way. So uh, Chuck Schumer, who is, of course, the leader of the Senate, said that he is going to move on all of these promotions very, very quickly, possibly even this afternoon. He is going to get the Senate to uh, vote on these confirmations, because usually what the Senate does, they don't they don't sit down and debate each and every one of these things. They they don't know these people. They trust the system that if the system says this person should be promoted to captain, that's what should happen or colonel or one star general. And so they vote on them in bulk. Oh, here's 200. Let's vote. Yes, we vote. Yes, let's do it. So there are still he still isn't giving up all of it. There are roughly 11 people waiting for a promotion to four stars or above. And uh, there's some question about whether or not there's a few other people who are he is exempting from his um, release. Unbelievable, isn't it? A year of making an ass of himself. And then all of a sudden he relents and says, well, you know, they didn't get what they wanted. What, what? They wanted you to release the promotion. So, yeah, yeah they kind of did get what they wanted. <laughs> I'm sorry. He gives me a headache. This is why I was worried when Herschel Walker was drafted to run against Raphael Warnock in Georgia. Because there are people who think, God, it was good in football. Why wouldn't he be good in the Senate? You know, really, he's famous. He's been successful. He's done these awesome things on the football field. Thank God we were really lucky, even though it was closer than it should have been. Herschel Walker, I mean, Herschel Walker makes George Santos look like a good candidate. Yeah, that's how bad Herschel Walker was. I mean, you've got a guy where women are coming out of the woodwork and saying that he pistol whipped them and threatened to kill them. And, you know, a guy who himself admits that he has 
or as he put it, he had really severe mental issues. But uh, but that but they're all cured now. That was before. Yes, I was severely mentally ill before, uh, but I'm all better now. All better now. We were very lucky that Herschel Walker was such a horrible, horrible person that he he couldn't string two sentence to, sentences together. He made no sense at his speeches. He was had a violent past, a violent history that he did not deny. And even then, that should have been a blowout. There should have been not a single person who wanted that flawed human being, Herschel Walker, in the Senate. But it wasn't. And good old boy Tommy Tuberville... Um, Tommy Tuberville, he, uh, he fooled them. And, uh, now they are living with a man widely held to be the least intelligent man in the Senate. Well, you know, I'm just going to let him go. I didn't lose. I didn't give in, but I'm just going to let him go. I'm sorry, Mr. Tuberville. That is losing. And that is letting go. Yes, actually, yes, it is. It is. <sighs> one more, uh, before we before we go to a break, one more quick thing that I want to touch on. You know, last time we did Pet of the Month, we talked about this mystery respiratory illness that is making dogs really sick in at least 12 different states. Um, there is a reporter, Jeff Arnold, who uh, reports for Patch, the local uh, Patch. And uh, researchers, are they believe that it, this illness is a bacterium, um, a mutated bacterium. And the, the animals that have gotten sick, the dogs who have gotten sick, seem to have in common that they were in community spaces, like they were in a boarding kennel, they were at doggy daycare, they recently were at the groomer or a dog park. So while I certainly don't want to hurt anybody's grooming business, you know, this may be a time... The researchers had already said as of Friday when we did this segment, when we agreed we didn't know much about this, they were already saying, you know, please, over the holidays, do not board your animals. There are lots of services where people will come and stay at your house. And um, honestly, for some of these people, it, the cost is about the same as boarding a dog. So if you're thinking of going away for the holidays and leaving Fido behind, go to a local community site or a local community billboard and see if you can find somebody who will stay in your home. And the nice part about that is that your house isn't empty, you know, and um, somebody can get the mail <laughs> and all that, all that other stuff. So... um 
That's what we know about that. It does appear to be a bacterium. Um, they they say that what, how this happens is your dog starts coughing, the cough won't go away, and suddenly the cough turns into pneumonia. Well, and it's good that they're finding this because hopefully, if they can narrow it down to one bug, then they can find an antibiotic that kills that bug. So. Good news on the mystery illness front. Let's take a break. We're going to take a break for just a couple of minutes, and we are going to come back with much more after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. A couple other, excuse me. Again, Ray's out of town, so except for talking to the dogs a little bit, I don't use my... I really should make Andy, who's back at the studio, um, that he and I should both get on the microphone at one thirty, and I should just talk to him for 15 minutes, and then my voice would get a little bit more warmed up than it is. A um, couple other things that I want to share with you. Um, Mike Johnson... You may have heard today that he is going to use funding for Ukraine. The funding that we talked about yesterday, how the the government is warning, the Office of Management and Budget is warning that at the end of the year, there's no more money, no more money and no more munitions for Ukraine. And so Mike Johnson has decided this is the perfect time to push the Republican border agenda, though I'm not quite sure what that means. He said something today to the effect of, oh, you want money for Ukraine? Well, you better give us everything we want at the border. So I guess we'll wait to see what it is that Mike Johnson wants at the border, if he even knows. I mean, everybody realizes that, you know, what we're doing at the border could be done a lot better. So maybe he's just creating a straw man, something he can wave to the far right members of his party and say, look, look, we're going to get this border money. And Biden, of course, is going, well, we were going to do that anyway. You're going to do that anyway, Mike. But that was one thing. But the other thing that I really wanted to talk to you about is he was talking about. uh, Remember, there was that big controversy. All the videos from January 6th were like handed over to Sean Hannity. For no apparent reason other than the Republicans like him. And so there was a big hue and cry that those videos, if they're going to be released, they should be released to everybody. And Mike Johnson was asked about that, why those videos still haven't been handed over. This was I don't. He said that they were going to take they're taking time to go through all the video and blur All the faces. Why? Well, because they don't want the DOJ to be able to identify anybody. Because, you know, if if they don't blur the faces and the DOJ can see all these people, well, some some of them might get arrested. We can't have that. Seriously, he's holding up the release of the video because they're hiring extra people 
to blur the faces because he doesn't want anybody identified for fear that the Department of Justice will bring charges against them for the insurrection and riot that took place that day. He is covering for them. Listen to this. Trust the American people to draw their own conclusions. We should not, they should not be dictated by some narrative and accept that as fact. So they can review the tapes themselves. Uh, we're going through a methodical process of releasing them as quickly as we can. As you know, we have to blur some of the faces of persons who uh, participated in, in, uh, in the events of that day because we don't want them to be retaliated against and, uh, and, and, and to be charged by the DOJ and, and to have other, uh, you know, concerns and problems. So uh, that's a slow process to get it done. We're working steadily on it. We've hired additional personnel to do that. And uh, all of those tapes ultimately at the end will, will be out so everybody can see them and draw their own conclusion. Yeah, we wouldn't want anybody to get arrested. But Mike, do you understand that they wouldn't get arrested unless they had committed crimes? So basically you don't want anybody who was violent that day to be arrested. That's the bottom line here. Mike Johnson, fabulous, fabulous human being. Oh, Liz Cheney, I know we've been talking about her a lot lately. She's been making the rounds on the morning talk shows and the evening talk shows and all the talk shows. She uh, sat down with Willie Geist on Morning Joe. And I'm going to share more of it with you later, but I wanted to share this one clip where they were talking about the future. Listen to Liz. What does the Republican Party look like going forward as you see it? Well, it certainly right now has abandoned those principles. You know, I joined the party uh, during the era of Ronald Reagan. And um, today the party looks much more like a cult of personality, frankly. And, And look, you know, Donald Trump is... Not a conservative. Uh, he has not been a Republican very long. Uh, I talk in the book at one point. I wanted to, to say that to tweet that I had been a Republican longer than Donald Trump had been spray tanning. My communications director <laughs> said, "No, no, don't don't do that." But but you know the seriousness of it is that the party is now walked away from the Constitution, and so I don't know if our party can be saved. Um, it may be that we need to build a new party, but I think those issues have to come after this 2024 cycle, because the focus has to be just completely right now on making sure we don't return Donald Trump to the White House. Yeah. And uh, why don't we want to return Donald Trump to the White House? Um, Because he was bad enough the first time and he will be worse the second time around. And I'm going to share more of that interview of her with Willie Geist, because um You know, one of the things that he asked her about is, you know, people say, well, you know, the government bureaucracy reined him in, you know, the worst of his impulses last time. They can do it again. And she disagreed with him. She disagreed that that those protections would work a second time, that there basically would be no guardrails. Listen to this. There have been uh, editorials written uh, saying, well, you know, this was in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago. You know, if Donald Trump is is elected again, 
we really don't have to worry because the the institutions of our government will prevent you know the worst that he will attempt to do that nothing could be further from the truth because those republicans you know a house with republicans like mike johnson uh a senate with people like josh Hawley and mike lee they won't stand up to him the other thing that's really important in this regard is he will not abide by the rulings of the courts and i think people really need to pause and think about what that means a president who won't enforce court rulings with which he disagrees, um, as soon as that happens, then people need to recognize um, immediately, you know, we are unraveling the fundamental structures and and systems that make us a nation of laws. And so uh, there won't be any guardrails to stop him. There won't be any guardrails to stop him. And we will lose our democracy. We will lose our form of government. (sighs) Jamie Raskin was talking um, about Trump and the danger of our democracy no longer continuing if Trump got into office. And he said, Liz, Liz has got it right. Listen to Jamie Raskin. Donald Trump has surrounded himself with a bunch of former criminals who he pardoned people like Uh, Michael Flynn and Joe Arpaio and Dinesh D'Souza and Steve Bannon. These are all people who Trump used the presidential power to pardon for crimes they were convicted of. And now they basically form the inner circle of his campaign. So you can see him trying to uh, create the embryo of a fascistic, authoritarian, criminal party once he gets back into office. And Liz Cheney's got it absolutely right. If he gets back in, does any person think that really he would ever leave office again? If you believe that, you're just too innocent to be let out of the House by yourself. (laughs) You're too innocent to be let out of the House by yourself. How's that for plain talking? (sighs) When we come back, there was a state of science report uh, issued recently. Um, As a matter of fact, it was uh, embargoed uh, until today, which means that sometimes they share it with reporters, but you can't talk about it till a certain day when it's officially going to be released. The report is the state of science in America. And uh, earlier today, I recorded an interview with um, one of the people who put that report together a woman by the name of Mary Woolley. When we come back after a break, we're going to share that interview on the state of science in America with you. We'll be right back. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa, you feel that right away. Uh, It's just refreshing. I'm joined now by Mary Woolley, who is president and CEO of Research America, and uh, she is co-chair of a group that just put out a report on the state of science in this country. Mary, welcome to our radio show. Oh, it's great to be with you, Joan. Uh, First of all, tell me a little bit about Research America and your involvement with this report. Sure. So I've been privileged to be the CEO of Research America for over 30 years now, and it's really a um, a privilege. We are a, a nonprofit alliance of 
of groups uh, that range from academia to industry to patient groups to foundations to scientific societies, all committed to making research and discovery, innovation, a higher priority in this country to face down some of the existential threats of our time. Those include disease. They also include energy shortages, energy production, food and water security, climate change, a whole range of very serious challenges. And our work involves making the case for putting science and technology to work at the full extent of its potential to find the answers to what ails us. And is the best way, I read all the time about you know, how we need to uh, step up research into pure science. We need to start science education uh, in the younger grades. What is the one or two or three things that you identified in this new report as the way that we can basically do science better? Well, the science, the conduct of science itself is going along beautifully, and not just in the U.S., but all around the world. The problem is there isn't enough of it, and that is, number one, discouraging to young people who might feel that they want to enter the the, uh, careers in science and technology, but they're not sure that our nation really puts a high priority on those fields anymore, and they have, they're right. Uh, we have systematically downgraded the priority of science and technology um, as budgets are cut and as um, the, the private sector in watching what the federal government is doing is pulling back also and looking to invest in other parts of the world instead of in the U.S. So there's, there are quite a few things to worry about, but the actual conduct of science is not in and of itself a problem. We have great, and uh, I trust always will have great scientists in this nation, even though we didn't always. The U.S. has long enjoyed being number one globally in science, but it wasn't always, and there's no guarantee that it will continue. We simply can't take leadership for granted. Looking at the Science and Technology Action Committee report, I was surprised at the large number of people that think that China will be the leader in science within the next five years. Right. And there's every reason looking at the data behind um, their growth, the Chinese growth, there's every reason to believe that will be the case, that they will be um, not only spending more as a percentage of their gross domestic product, the GDP, but reaping the benefits more and more. And we uh, let's be clear, too, that it's not as though uh, we in this country want other countries to lose out. We, we just want to make sure that we have a level playing field and every opportunity to continue our leadership in areas that are especially critical to the U.S. population. And those include um, defense, of course, and our security, also health um, and quality of life that comes from food and water security, for example, and energy production. What? Give me a couple of the key findings from the new report and what you think that we should know about them. Right. 
So you've already um, mentioned one, Joan, which is really important, and that's the the reality that uh, not just people close to the science enterprise, but those who are a little more distanced from it, distanced from it, are concerned that we're losing our leadership. So that's a big one. Another one is that the caliber, the perception of American workers, that the caliber of K twelve. STEM education, and to a certain extent, um, uh, higher education in STEM is simply not great anymore, and it needs to be. It's been slipping dramatically. There's just a recent report that math scores on tests that 15-year-olds take uh, globally, U.S. math scores have now plummeted even further down, so they're way below the average of other nations. And that's just not a good sign if we want to be able to um, fill the many science and tech jobs that are likely to open, are forecast to be open in this nation. We need to have students who are prepared, uh, have, the, have the qualifications in math and science fields and engineering to take those jobs. The third point I would really like to emphasize is a, is um, almost shocking, and that's that 70% of those who were surveyed say they feel that children today will be worse off than um, previous generations. In, in large measure, they say that's because we've let science and technology slip. And it is this broad recognition in a bipartisan way across generations, by, uh, recognition that it's science and technology that drives the economy, that creates good jobs, and um, gives us a good feeling about our future. You mentioned that math scores were down. I assume that that's not an indication that our students are simply less capable than they were. I'm guessing that means that maybe the best and brightest are not entering these fields, that they're going off to other fields that they feel are either more exciting or more lucrative. So how do we woo them back, well, Mary? Right, right. It's a, it's a very good question, Joan. And those scores are really of 15-year-olds, so they, it's less likely that they're um, that the explanation is that they're going into different fields. But what is probable is that they're not inspired and being um, effectively taught the uh, math skills that they need in this 21st century. And that gets back to teaching. So we, we know that it's a broadly recognized problem that um, math teaching isn't as strong as it used to be in this nation, and that's partly because we don't compensate math teachers very well, and they have plenty of other options. Now, that's a, um, and they, they're the ones that are going into other jobs rather than education. So this means that states and local communities have to make it a, prioritized, a priority to up their game in K-12 education. The federal government plays a role too, but um, as you know, it's really the state and local governments that drive education standards and, um, and commitments in this nation. And uh, sadly, this State of Science in America report uh, also found that um, people were very worried about Increase distrust and politi 
politicalization of science. Um, I mean, it's I don't know if this is true or if they were just making fun of him. But, you know, the Speaker of the House currently, Mike Johnson, is, you know, told all the reporters, if you want to know my position on an issue, read the Bible. And there was some reporting. And God, I hope it was being satirical, but I suspect it might not have been that he is um, one of those religious people who believes that, you know, Jesus was around at the time of the dinosaurs and uh, the world is only 6,000 years old. And when, even if it isn't true, if it is just somebody mocking him, the fact that I could even think that somebody in this kind of a position might hold these beliefs is is a real reflection of where we are now with misinformation and disinformation. It really does affect even the state of science, doesn't it? It does, um, and we are we were actually surprised to see that very high percentage, eighty percent overall, who uh, of those surveyed uh, find find it very troubling. Uh, that we have this level of distrust and politicization of science. Um, many of us are working on that. Um, the uh, members of the uh, stack committee that we've already mentioned are the drivers behind this report, are individually and sometimes working in coalition, um, trying to be sure that the American public, number one, has every reason to trust science, and that means being worthy of being trusted, number one, but also has more accessibility, the public has more accessibility to the science community. We can't, the science community needs to take some responsibility here and realize that um, just because uh, we write an article or make a pronouncement that everybody understands and everybody cares. That's not the way trust is established. We have to get out there and have conversations with people and find ways to put science to work to meet the real problems people are experiencing right now. That can happen, and we're we're committed to making it happen. One of the um, parts of the um, State of Science in America report that I thought was particularly interesting is you don't just say, okay, here's where we are, these are the problems. You also take the time to make recommendations, policy recommendations for how we move forward from here. For instance, create a national strategy for advancing science and technology innovation. What would that look like? Right. Well, thank you for um noticing that that's really a hallmark of this report is that it's just not it's not just a diagnosis of problems um it also points in the direction of strategic solutions and we need those solutions so a comprehensive national plan for advancing science and technology in the US is something that we've never done and uh, other nations have so there's um, some blueprints for us to take a look at but the the point is that that plan um, it needs to engage uh, both public and private sector um, individuals and capitalize on, if you will, the brain power that exists in many sectors. That Now, again, we expect the, and we are calling on the Congress to um, demand that plan and to get involved in, in its pr- production and then in holding everyone's feet to the fire that we meet the metrics that the plan will put forward. 
Right now, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is part of the White House um, complex, if you will, has uh, begun work because this plan has been called for by in other sectors. But it needs to have more spotlights around it and more more support from people who are paying attention so that it doesn't um, drift away and not come to fruition. So you can count on the Science and Technology Action Committee going forward um, to keep everyone's feet to the fire, if you will, and to participate. Another thing we need to do right now and that we are strongly recommending and working on is to assure while the Congress is having debates as they are about the federal budget for uh, the fiscal 24, 2024 year, well, that uh, conversation is taking place and it should have been wrapped up in September, but that's another story. It's ongoing and eventually decisions will be made. So we want, we're working hard to make sure that in that decision-making progress, um, progress toward it and in its outcome, that science is not just at the table, that it's one of the priorities going forward. And we can't take it for granted anymore that we're going to achieve progress if we don't have a plan. A plan what's been the, the response every time? <laughs> yeah. What response have you gotten to so, this report? Well, this is day one on its release, so uh, the the right thing to say about the response is lots of interest in it. And like you, Joan, like questions being raised about um, what are we going to do? We see there's a problem. Now what can be done? And that's really where the focus is going to be tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and for the next several months as we continue to hammer home the importance of of making a plan, achieving its goals, and assuring that uh, three to five years from now, we won't be looking at an even worse set of indicators than we're seeing today. Yeah. Do you get the, do you get the sense that um, this is the kind of thing that President Biden could get behind? Because from what he's talked about and American competitiveness and sort of a resurgence of American industry, I, I kind of think that this working along these lines and, and, and boostering uh, bo- boostering organizations and boosting our commitment to science would be right up his alley. I, I have a lot of faith that this will be well-received at the highest levels. Do you? Um, I, I share your um, uh, confidence in that regard, and I don't think it's only the White House, nor is it, nor should it be, uh, a partisan issue. Uh, the the history of support for science and technology in this country since uh, World War II has always been bipartisan. And there are uh, major leaders in both parties right now, including those that um, conceptualized and passed the Chips and Science Act a couple of years ago that went through the Congress in a very strong bipartisan way uh, with leadership on both sides of the aisle. We have every reason to believe that can continue, um, but it it has to be um, in response to, number one, the kind of data that we put together in this report, but very importantly also and always um, constituents saying, listen, don't ignore this problem. Take action yeah. now before it gets worse. So there's something for everybody to do, whether you're science trained or not. And that's to ask your elected representative and those who are aspire to public office to make 
a commitment to supporting science and technology as a national priority that will pay off for everyone. If uh, you are interested in this report and would like to read more about it, there's a link, sciencetechaction.org slash the state of science in America with uh, dashes. I will uh, I will try to put that out on my social media, um, but you can get the whole Thank report you, at sciencetechaction.org slash the state of science in America. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this. Mary Woolley, of course, president and CEO of Research America, uh, also the American Association for the Advancement of Science had a big role in this. Mary, thank you so much for spending time and explaining this new report to us. My pleasure, Joan. Thank you for uh, your time today. Have a great one. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was uh, on a recorded interview that I did just this morning. Mary wasn't available this afternoon, and the report is officially public today. It is, of course, uh, the state of science, and we have... Uh, Steve from the Gold Coast, who wants to talk more about this. Hey, Steve, how are you? Yes, thank you for taking my call. And I can't express enough how important an issue this is. We are now in a global marketplace, obviously. And unlike, say, in the post-World War II era, in which, by and large, the United States ruled the roost. You know, over 50% of everything that was produced in the world was produced in this country post-World War II. And then slowly that's been eroding. As, uh, not because, you know, we've, uh, we've gotten to be lesser. It's that other countries caught up. And, and quite frankly, uh, the other issue, and it's one that really needs to be addressed, the fact that uh, this is partisan in many ways. There is, there is a huge torrent of anti-intellectualism that's coming from the right in this country. It used to be an undercurrent of anti-intellectualism. Now it's openly such, so that you've got people whose children could go to college, they could afford it, they can afford to send them, and they're, uh, they're being told by conservatives, no, 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 don't send your children there. They're, it's nothing but a place where they're going to be indoctrinated into leftist ideology, and really, you know, the, there's a better way to spend your money to secure your child's future. Now, of course, that's nonsense. Uh, we, we have the research with regard to the value of education. The value of education is tremendous in terms of securing long-term acquisition of wealth and uh, in, in terms of higher income potential, lower unemployment, all of the things that we associate with a better standard of living. So we've got a real problem in this country in that even if we invest in these kinds of things, we've got an entire cohort of people who aren't interested in education any longer and are spreading that dangerous message to a lot of the population. And I don't know how to combat that. Yeah, I was just reading, I don't know if it was in the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, I think it was the Washington Post, uh, how homeschooling, uh, which is an outgrowth of this, we don't want you exposed to any ideas that don't fit our word worldview. Homeschooling, while it certainly is not, um, it's not the ma- majority way people uh, educate their kids, but it is growing. It said something like in the last year, the number of kids homeschooled had had gone up by a hundred percent. You know, it used to be that if uh, yeah. you were very religious, you didn't want to send your kids to public schools because, you know, they would get ideas. Um, but uh, now there's all kinds of folks who have taken to this and. There are certainly 
you know, if you've got a gifted child and, you know, you're homeschooling them and you can move them along at a rapid pace, you know, gosh, that's wonderful. But if you're homeschooling somebody because you don't want them to ex- you don't want them to be exposed to ideas. Whew, how is that going to do yeah, us any good as a country? Mm hmm. And the, the other thing with regard to homeschooling is that you, your child misses out on the critical aspects of socialization in terms of being with other kids, and, because that's what life is going to be when you get out into the real world. going to be a lot of people you work with, some you like, some you don't, going to be very different from you, a lot of them. And that's an essential part of it. And the other part of it is, okay, if I, I don't mean to demean people, uh, you know, perhaps your, your child, or you don't have aspirations for your child, your child that doesn't want to pursue post-secondary education, okay. But for those who do, I'm sorry. I, mean, I hold two advanced degrees. I couldn't begin to, ter- to teach advanced calculus, high school calculus. I haven't done it in years. It's not my thing. And so I'm wondering who these people are who think they're qualified to teach and prepare their children for, uh, for a university education, the SAT, everything else that, that they're going to have to go through if they want to get into it in school. Uh, they're not qualified to do it. So I'm wondering, how is this happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Those are good questions. Maybe we can ask uh, Mary to examine that in the next report. Uh, thanks for the call, Steve. Always, always appreciate it when you uh, join our conversation. As a matter of fact, Paul from <clears throat> from Seattle is on the line as well. Hey, Paul, how are you today? I'm fine. I wanted to, to tag on to Steve's point is also, and what we're seeing is that anti-intellectualism correlates with the rise of fascism. It's yep. exactly what happened in the 19. 19- 20s and 30s, uh, when there was a, a huge intellectual uh, movement in Europe. I mean, this is when uh, quantum quantum physics was really uh, the, the birth of it was in play. And and where we saw fascism, for instance, in Spain, what caused the the, the Catholic Church was supported Francisco Franco in the overthrow of the government to have a, a military coup because the, the church wanted control of the education system. That's what, that's what was, that's what it was about. And he was, and they were willing to support Franco in the coup to overthrow the government so they could have that. And then you saw, obviously the Nazi movement in Germany was, it's all anti-intellectualism. I and mean, we have that mm-hmm. now. Uh, and, and I think part of the reason, and by the way, the reason, College education is so expensive, and that's one of the arguments why they say the main reason, and by where I got this, I'm citing my source, happens to be Zeke Emanuel in his book uh, the, about the Affordable Care Act, reforming, uh, rebuilding the American health care system, is that legislatures are not funding, are not subsidizing the colleges as much as they used to, and the states are going broke for having, remember, they're the, the state is the largest employer in the state, and they have to provide health care for their employees. And that's going through the roof. And so uh, the, where the, rather than raise taxes, what governors and legislatures are doing are simply cutting the fat from where they can get it, and that's the subsidies to the university. So if you want to go to college, you can damn well pay for it yourself, and it makes it too expensive, and it plays right into the right wing. It also makes the state, the state college education, which is usually quite a bit lower, start to approach the same cost as the private schools like Hillsdale College. So the, the competition with the, um, w- with the private colleges, which are kind of, uh, if you ask me, Hillsdale is a wacky place. Um, <laughs> and it does belong right next to the Jackson prison there in Michigan. Um, that's where they should go. Uh, it, it is 
anti-intellectualism is is how you get to fascism. That's that's the point, and that's what's happening. You have people, uh, the homeschooling guy, like Steve says. I, listen, I taught math for a long time. I taught high school math. I taught calculus, and the way these parents, I've had parents argue with me that I'm teaching it wrong. No, you should be teaching fractions like this. I'm <sighs> like, uh, no, 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 no. That's a shortcut that you learned. That's why your kid can't do algebra because they have a mistaken uh, belief about how equations work because they learned these shortcuts from you at home. And now when they try to apply it to where you don't have numbers, you just have letters, they're all confused. That's, that's why. And then say, okay, well, that is the, what Steve said was right on point, and that's why we're headed towards – I mean, what, what, who but unsophisticated Philistines would, would, would buy what Trump, Donald Trump is selling? <laughs> well, that's a that's a very good question. Um, um, I think that the there is another group that's at least in the past supported Trump, and that was uh, rich people who don't really care about the country, but they saw a tax cut coming their way, and yeah, they um, and they didn't really care. You know how much how much damage could he do? Really, you know. Um, and then we found out how much damage he could do. So, yeah, well, you know what? I was thinking last night when I was watching Liz Cheney on with Rachel Maddow, the right, the lawyers and the, the educated in the right, uh, the right wing are not stupid people, but they're misleading the ones who don't have an education. I'll just leave with this point. When I was teaching, I remember I had uh, I, I worked at a private school at one point. I had a lot of a lot of girls who were in ballet and they they went to this program because it was fewer hours in class. And well, this one girl asked me about geometry. Why do I need to learn this? What's what's so? Why, what is this for? And I tried to, to explain to her: this is not about triangles and stuff. It's about learning to think and logic. And if anybody can identify yeah. that you have holes in that in your thinking, they can take advantage of you. Paul, thank if you for you the call. Reason. I've got a uh, Andy says I have to cut this short. We have a longer break at the top of the hour. Thank you so much for uh, calling in. And uh, Andy, I'm throwing it to you so we can do news at the top of the hour. And uh, we will be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. Just recently, I was having a conversation with Dr. Lowell Bear. And we ran out of time, and I had things that I needed to say and questions I needed to ask. So he has graciously uh, rejoined us today. Uh, for those of you who missed our first interview, uh, Dr. Bear is an, an expert on the Endangered Species Act and the author of the Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volumes 1 and two. Now, is volume two out now, Dr. Bear? Uh, uh, Joan, I think today it's being released today. Woohoo! Well, um, should we have a party? Well, Are you having a party? Nice. Will there be a party? Well, <laughs> no, no, but tomorrow night at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is having the party of the year to celebrate the act. Um, enactment uh, 50 years ago this month. 
Wow. Um, that's, um, I wouldn't have thought it would have been around that long. Um, but I think it's, I think it's fabulous. You know, I've always believed that any opportunity to celebrate should be taken advantage of. Are you planning to be there? I am. As a matter of fact, my wife and I will both be going and, uh, will be amongst a lot of friends that we know that, uh, have worked on the act and are, uh, very much a part of the history of the act. Now, as is well this as contemporary? Will work. you be speaking? Will there be speakers at this no. event? Uh, there may be. I have not been asked to speak. I'm sure there will be a few remarks made by um, someone from the from uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Martha Williams is the director, and she's the logical one that would speak. Um, exactly. You know, we know about the, we hear about these organizations like the Fish and Wildlife Service. But, you know, other than checking to make sure that people have their permits um, to, you know, go out and catch a certain number of salmon, what are some of their other responsibilities? Um, the, are you talking about just the agency itself? US yeah. I mean, do they... Um, well, do they work to formulate, like, you know, the um, Endangered Species Act needs to be strengthened or updated or or rewritten or that kind of thing? Do they do other yeah. work uh, other than being, you know, out in the national parks and out where people are hunting and fishing? Well, yes, they we have a system of wildlife, uh, fish and wildlife ref- refuges throughout the United States. And they manage all of those. I, I used to have the number in my head, but I, I've lost it. But it's over 300 refuges. And they manage those in addition to man, dealing with the Endangered Species Act, as well as other envir- environmental regulatory um, uh, acts that are assigned to them. The, uh, the service, moreover, is constantly at work. On, on new regulations that not only uh, that, that liberalize the application of the act to make it easier for people and, uh, and working landowners to live with. Mm-hmm. Do they have and that, that, that? There's a there's a whole section of, of uh, biologists and uh, attorneys that that work constantly on just the regulations. Is there any uh, formal mandate that species preservation is part of what they should be doing or are doing? Well, the act itself mm-hmm. um, is an act of Congress that gives them, that designates the, the, uh, the authority of enforcing and administering that act to them. You know, I am... Um, Assuming right now that the people listening to us heard our earlier interview, and that's um, that's not a good thing for me to assume. So let's do a little bit of uh, of a recap. Um, talk about the Endangered Species Act and what it does. Sure, sure, and I will. The uh, the act uh, for your listeners was passed in in on December twenty eighth, uh, nineteen seventy three. Prior to that, there was a very simple act uh, that came about in 1966 
that was modified in 1969, and then both acts uh, were combined into the 1973 law. And the purpose of the law was to um, try to stem and and stop a a a, a, a progressive uh, extinction that was going on of many many species, plants and animals and animals. Of plants, animals, insects, and other living organisms, and the act was 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 passed. They debated it, uh, the amendment, and and the new final act. They debated debated it throughout seventy two and seventy three, and President Nixon signed the new law on December twenty eighth, nineteen seventy three, um, and it uh, it was the broadest uh, and most comprehensive environmental law that was ever passed by any nation in in the world. Hmm. Speaking about um, other nations in the world, are there other countries who have, say, their own version of the Endangered Species Act? Uh, yes, there are. But before we even go abroad to look at that, every state has its own Endangered Species Act. Um, and some of them are stronger in their language and enforcement of and enforceability than the federal act, but every state has one as well. And most of the major countries in the world have um, a, a similar type of of, uh, of law. Is there? Um, um, and as a matter of fact, I should say, uh, Joan, that. Um, about every five years, they all get together for an That's what I was going to ask. If they ever get together and say, okay, guys, here's who's yeah. on our list and here's why and, and share information yeah. and share research? Yes, they do. And they meet about every five years. And, in, in, for example, in 1973, the um, group, uh, the World Group met right here in Washington D.C., where I'm based, and um, they uh, out of that came not only uh, a, a further push to strengthen our law, uh, but also the CITES Convention came out of that, which which was a, a uniform agreement between all countries on certain species and their and their protection that included the elephants. Uh, of uh, Africa and Asia, the uh, striped tigers and other things, uh, other endangered species like that. So you've attended and participated in these meetings? No, I haven't. I've never been to one of the world events. I've always uh, stayed with just here within the the federal uh, and state um, complex. Well, Dr. Baer, you wrote the book. Um, the Codex of Endangered Species Act, Volumes 1 and 2. Why are you not at these meetings? Well, uh, first of all, uh, uh, primarily because they're, they're, they're pretty much barred uh, and just basically for federal officials, primarily. Oh. I, I have been, been invited a cu- to a couple of the, of the uh, CITES meetings, which are once, once no, every two years uh, as an observer. But frankly, they've been abroad and it's the wrong time of the year for me to go. So um, I know that you um, started your 
educational life in Indiana, Valparaiso University, got your law degree at Indiana University. Um, and was it right after that that you moved to the Washington, D.C. area? Uh, the answer is yes. However, I had a year here when I was 16 year, years old, 1956. Um, I was a page boy in the U.S. House of Representatives oh. for a congressman from northern Indiana, the 2nd District. Charles Haddock was his name. And I was his page boy in 1956, which really started what I all call my love love her with Washington, D.C. So I went home, got my degrees, but came back every summer to work either in the Congress or um, in one of the agencies. Do you think if you were a young congressional page today with the political environment we have now, that Washington, D.C. would be so attractive to you? Well, no, I don't. <laughs> I, 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 no, I, I thought long and hard about going into politics after a year here in 1956. And I I saw enough then to say, no, I don't want any part of politics. It was it was tough back then, but not like it is today. Where where did your love of um, wildlife and wildlife conservation come from? I was raised on a farm in northern Indiana, and uh, um, I just nature and and wildlife and the seasons were and nature were were just a part of farm life. You watch the weather um, uh, every day, uh, as well as the farm prices and so forth for corn and oats, wheat soybeans and um, the, the and, and what the earth produces um, and uh, it just became a part of me and uh, before I knew it I was really really going in the direction of of uh, conservation work so you were on and a that, farm you grew crops so it's for so it started when I was basically a kid out there in Indiana and mm-hmm. I wanted your listeners to know I was born in Chicago Really? Yes, I was. Uh, my father was in the um, civilian um, service, uh, building airplanes during World War II, and so we lived on the south side of Chicago near Roslyn. Believe it or not, <laughs> wow! Roslyn, I think it's pronounced. <laughs> and then in uh, nineteen forty-six, uh, uh, when the uh, war ended, we went back. We went to the farm. What um, what I know um, you said today, congratulations, is the official release date for the second volume. Um, what what are you covering in this codex? Are you uh, re- recording the laws? Are you talking about the protected species? Do you talk about the research that allowed them to be protected species? What are we going to find in uh, Codex of Endangered Species Act Volume 2? Well, for your for the benefit of your listeners, Joan, volume one was a history. We call it the Codex of the Endangered Species Act. Um, the first fifty years. Volume two is the same name, the Codex of the Endangered Species Act. Uh, the next fifty years. Now, uh, fifty years ago, the Congress, when they drew this up and passed it, did not anticipate. Um, the problems that they've experienced, like climate change, 
like invasive species, like uh, diseases like uh, CWD, a chronic wasting disease, and other uh, uh, forms of uh, of, uh, uh, of items that really affected the life and, and longevity and the reproduction of of species, and uh, so I, I put together a group of of, of twenty seven scientists and practitioners, administrators of the act, and said, let's, let's, what can we provide today as a guidebook for the future? Such that when things that are not even, even known or appreciated and recognized today, when those appear, what, what, what do we want to leave by the way of a guidebook for the, the government and the uh, administrators to follow? And to, to and how to deal with with the future of uh, unknowns, and so volume two really is a look back not only at the fifty years at how we then managed to do um, to, to deal with these unknowns as they presented themselves, and um, 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 and how how do you manage change? basically, and what's the best way to approach it. That's what volume two is all about. Well, give us some some of the information from volume volume two. What does the future look like here, and how are we going to manage these changes? Well, yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, the, uh, the, uh, The first thing that we learned as we delved into this is that when the act was passed in 73, it was a top-down federal government uh, in, in enforceable act which within which the states really had no, no say. And there was a huge, huge um, attempt in Congress to give priority um, to the states. But the way the, the Federal Act was written... Um, the uh, 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 federal government rem- remained totally in, char- totally in charge of what I will call the primacy um, uh, uh, and having the last word of enforcing the act. So it took us from 73 until the early 90s, the Clinton era, to recognize that this rigid authoritarian one-sided act just wasn't going to work in, in a democratic republic. Um, people just could not live with it, and it was causing constant fights between landowners, state and federal government, and so forth. And a lot of landowners have criticized that act for um, being almost a land-use tool that the federal government could, could use to basically shut down operations if they wanted to in timber, in mining, in grazing cows, and grazing cattle, and so forth. Um, so what we learned from that is that it has to have flexibility, more, more, more flexibility to deal with the unknowns. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was really the first major uh, thing that we recognized is absolute flexibility. Um, so the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service could handle change 
through regulations versus having to go back to the Congress. There have been uh-huh. only, in 50 years, Joan, there have been only three major amendments to the Endangered Species Act, the last one, 1988. What happened thereafter is, is recognizing what I've just said and how difficult it is for a Congress that is, is in constant turmoil, that you really can't get anything done with the Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can't act. And they can't act very, you know, very, very quickly. And, and so uh, regulations versus legislation was the key that uh, that we picked up from really uh, the past that we could look, use going going forward. Just as one example. There are a so, lot more I can go on. I could so go on so fish hours. and wildlife can issue regulations on their own. Uh, then they don't have to go every time they want a new regulation. They don't have to get congressional approval. That's correct. And just to give you an example, when the law was passed in mm, 73, there were the regulations were 50 pages long. Today, they're 5,000 pages. Just to give you an example wow. of, of the kind of work that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has done, to ramp up some flexibility of the act and make it much more easy for the for the working landowner to deal with it. I don't know. I think if you gave me a choice of 50 pages or 5,000, I'd opt for 50, <laughs> Lowell. Well, uh, I, most people would, and I guess that's why they have lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's very difficult. But I, I wrote a book um, a few years ago on dealing with those 50,000 um, uh, with those five thousand pages of regulations, and how you how do you deal with with, yeah. with the massive government with all the programs? Not only at the at the Department of Interior, which is is where the Fish and Wildlife Service is housed, but over at the Department of Agriculture, where much of the money comes from that goes to the farmers and the and the ranchers and, and other land owners uh, owners throughout the country. So. Um, uh, it it uh, it's very complicated. That's why I wrote the book as a guidebook because as I toured the country and writing these codex books, so many people, so so many people said, "For God's sake, <laughs> would you go back to Washington and 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 and, and write a book that explains to us um, uh, uh, landowners uh, uh, how we how we deal with all of these laws? Yeah, and where do we find where do we find?" that we were told is out there if we look for it, et cetera. Because, for example, Title II of the mm, of the Farm Bill, which is enacted, reenacted every five years. is And I believe just was reenacted, wasn't it? No, no, they're, 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 it's just now up for debate. They're oh, now okay. debating. It just started. And that may take a year or so to get through this or even two years. But, but in Title II of that, it's the largest um, uh, available uh, set uh, and portfolio of programs available to working landowners for a variety of different things. Everything from from uh, 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 wetlands and unusable land to um, a very fertile land that can be used for crops as well as livestock. Does this all... In- 
uh, cover and, and what you're talking about cover. I know once in a while I'll read about a controversy out west about um, mm-hmm. cattle being grazed on federal lands and we know whether yes. or not that should happen or should it be increased or decreased. Is that the kind of issue that is uh, being dealt with with the kind of law you're talking about? That Yes, that's controlled by the Forest Service. The Forest Service is an agency of the of the um, Department of Agriculture, and um, yes, that's just one of the many types of issues that uh, that, that stem from um, the regulations over there as to whether or not cattle should even be grazed on on federal uh, the federal lands. But it's uh, a major have- part of, of uh, it's. But it's a major part. Mm-hmm. of the grazing program for, for cattle ranchers out in the West. I know a lot of them have argued that they can't, simply can't stay in business um, unless they have that that kind of access. Um, yes, and I correct. don't know about cattle grazing. And my great aunt and great uncle used to have um, a sheep farm. And I know that sheep are not good. The, they're not the best things for cutting your grass because they have a tendency to pull it up by the roots. That's all about I that's know true. about that. Well, that's true. That's Plus, right. they don't that's smell right. very good. They, all that lanolin well, that they exude. <laughs> whew, give me goats well, any day of the week. That's why the, the cattlemen uh, and the uh, sheep growers are always in conflict with each other, it seems. Uh-huh. I can see that. So, uh, Lowell, when's the Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volume 3, coming out? Well, that comes out on Earth Day next year, which is April 22. And um, what the publisher uh, asked me to do was was write a book that had a, had a lot of human interest stories in it. Um, one and two are pretty pretty heavy volumes. They're more academic, more for the researcher, and the the, the folks that really want to know, well, my God, how did we get here? Because most folks that are in their careers weren't around 50 years ago and don't know, don't remember, uh, uh, or didn't didn't pay attention to how the act uh, was put together 50 years ago and how it has changed through the court system, the Congress, and um, the, the agency itself. And throughout my travels of, oh, golly, my interviews were probably 80 to 90 people. And, wow. Um, and, and I heard the darndest stories of, of uh, problems and issues that when I began to, to write, I couldn't believe how many, many human interest stories that I, that, I, that I heard. So that's what's all in volume. I will call it volume three. It's not called Codex. It's called Earth's Emergency Room. Oh. And then, well, there's, and then there's a sub, subtitle that we're still wrestling with about ESA and the politics. Um, well, when but, you're ready but, to give us a preview about that, well, um, shoot well, let me, me, let shoot me, me, let me a just, note. Well, let me just tell you what, what's in it. Okay. Unfortunately, just as we did last time, we are out of time. I've actually no, okay, we've actually next, gone next into time. the commercial break a little bit, but I was so okay. interested I didn't care. So uh, we'll save that next time. Doctor Bear is here. We're going to preview Volume Three. Okay, stay tuned. Happy, We're going to have you back before April. Okay. Thank you. Happy holidays to all. 
Thank you. We are going to take a break and be back with more after this. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. When we last spoke to David Hochberg, when we ended our time together, there were still like five people who were texting questions and uh, people who were waiting on the phone lines. And I promised I would bring David back to to answer some of those questions and uh, share some of those comments. Right now, I'd like to once again open up the phone lines. Andy Miles is there to take your calls. 773-763-9278-773-763-9278. Or if you've never called or texted with that number before, remember it as 773-763-WCPT. Hello, David. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing really well, and I would like to start. Um, we do have some things we're going to get to uh, from listeners, but I I want to start. Uh, David, you know, has said on this program that uh, the time to get a line of credit is when you don't need it, that it's a great thing to have in case of emergency. And so I thought to myself, I should probably do this. And so I went to David. He put me in touch with his favorite people, and through BMO Bank, I was able to do all of the paperwork, and it was um, pretty painless. I didn't have to go in for an actual closing. I also, at the same time, opened up a checking account at BMO. Uh, okay, it took a little while, but all great. Got that HELOC and it's sitting there just in case my world uh, blows up one of these days and I suddenly need access to some cash. But here's the thing, David. Uh, first of all, the people at BMO, uh, I did go in there because I was opening up a checking account in addition to over and above the HELOC. The people couldn't have been nicer. They really couldn't have been nicer. But I will tell you, between the checking account and the HELOC, BMO... I, I swear to God that I get mail from them every day, every day. And, you know, that's fine. You know, sometimes that happens when you just start a business relationship with an organization. You know, like they want to know. They want me to know, like, how my checking account works. Like, you know, like I'm not old as dust and haven't had checking accounts my whole life. But I get that. So today I'm getting all this mail. And today I get this thing that appears to be from BMO Bank. BMO Bank, N.A., important. So, of course, being responsible, I open it right up. And it um, has my closing date, has my loan amount, has BMO Bank. Uh, I didn't check this number, has what appears to be a mortgage ID. And then this letter, yeah. we've been attempting to contact you Regarding a matter of importance, please call this yeah. number. And I'm like, you know, yeah. they know my loan amount. They know my bank. They, I didn't double check, but I'm, they seem to know the ID. They know the closing date. And I'm like, well, this is kind of weird. Um, what's going wrong? And then 
in this tiny, and I do mean tiny, have I told you I wear reading glasses? I'm blind yep, as a bat. On the bottom, right? And with All the, way the, the reading glasses, I can barely read yep. this. And it says here, not affiliated with or sponsored by Evil. any bank or lending institution. All information is obtained solely through public records, which may not be accurate or complete. By calling the number, you agree to allow a representative who is solely responsible for complying with TCPA laws to receive your number, mortgage info from public records, and your automated line answers, and to call you and text you about insurance products. If you do not wish to receive such calls or texts, do not call the number above. In the tiniest little print at the bottom of what is like a very official notice that seems to already have uh, information that would ordinarily lead me to believe this was legit. What the heck is this and how did they get my information? Yeah, all your information when the loan, when any loan closes gets recorded at the county level. And the county, then that public, that information becomes public information. And that information is then collated and sold by list companies, marketing companies that sells it to uh, mortgage companies. So on the bottom, what you see is the, the name of a mortgage company in negative 20 font with an NMLS number that you can't decipher and a phone number you can barely read unless you put it under a gigantic magnifying glass. We get the same things. They're misleading. They attack our our database after we close loans with Team Hochberg, then we get callers from borrowers. Hey, how come you're sending me this? You know, a death notice. Buy this insurance in case you die, and it's just a bunch of poppycock nonsense. And there's nothing you could do to stop it because the the information is public information, and these and these list companies are buying the information off of or are ascertaining the information off of the county website and that collating it and combining it and um, selling it to companies that sent you the letter trying to get you to call to buy a product that you do not need. Well, that's, if this uh, fine very print, confusing and unfortunate. This fine print doesn't even tell me who the insurance company is. It just says uh, right. we can call you. If you call this number, we're, you are giving us permission to call and text you about insurance products. Whose insurance products? I mean, if it gave well, the name well, of the uh, company, I'd call them up and complain. No. Well, right. Well, and there's a challenge because you, you might be on a no-call list. And they can't call you, but they could send you an official-looking letter to scare the hell out of you to think that you've got to act. And then you call that 800 number. You're not, they're not calling you. You're calling them. That gets them around the do-not-call list, right? So it's, it's a bunch of garbage. It's bait-and-switch. Um, we get that all the time. As, and you're going to see it. Your listeners are going to see it a lot more. As the rates start coming down, the rates are finally starting to come down. Um, you're going to get letters from, hey, you know, you have exactly what you, you know, you took out your loan in this year with this amount and this interest rate, and you live at this address. Uh, call us now to look to see, can you qualify for a, a refinance at a rate that's so far below the market? It's ridiculous, okay? It's, it's a bait and switch. They try to get you on the hook and get you in the boat and gut you before you know what's going on, and then the next thing you know, 
you're kind of like running around thing and you got taken advantage of. I always recommend to our listeners is this. If you like the person that did your last loan, okay, call that person. If you don't like the person that did your last loan, call me, right? If you get anything that you're and that you're curious or you don't think is on the up and up, we'll review it. Listen, I got a, a 26-year-old young man who's the um, who's uh, who's the son of the girl that used to live next to me at Grant North at Northern Illinois. This young man's buying his first place. He's going to pay cash. And he's like, hey, I've got all these questions. My mom said to call you. And Jan reached out to me earlier and said, hey, can you just help Ben what he's doing? You know, I spent 15 minutes with Ben today answering all his questions. That's what lenders do, right? They, you know, we don't have to, we're not going to charge you for the information. So, and the reason I bring that up is, is because if you get something that you think came from your lender or said came from your lender, call your lender. If you enjoyed working with your lender, then call the guy or gal you work with in the past and say, hey, what is this? And they will tell you, like, if they're still in business, you know, they'll tell you what I just told you, 9.9.999 times out of 10. It's garbage. It's trash. Shred it. And then that point zero zero one, it might be a flyer or somebody trying to solicit you, and you should use your previous lender. If that lender that you used you didn't like or is currently not in business because they couldn't make it the past 23 months because the rates have shot up, then give me a call. I'll review it, and my team will review it and give you an idea if it's if it's legit or something that we think you should do or if what you've got is, is or go in another direction than what you have. So be very careful out there because as the rates start coming down, Joan, and they are starting to come down, we're still nowhere near where, where we need them to be to have a fluid, equalized market where, where our listeners feel comfortable getting out of their twos and threes and going into a five um, and, and banking all that equity in their new home. But that day will come, and just be careful. Be, be very, very careful because there's a lot of scumbags out there who are, who are barely making it and are just looking to pick people off. We're not one of those one of those type of lenders. Well, you know, and and lenders it wasn't just I got you know I got this that <clears throat> seemed to be from BMO, but uh, Ray has a checking account with Bank of America and he has a credit card with Bank of America and he got this notice in the mail and said Bank of America you have um, credit card X. Hey. You know, yeah. you're a good customer. Why don't you upgrade to credit card Bank of America? Why? And he yeah. actually called Bank of America and they were like, that didn't come from us. That didn't yeah. come from yeah. us. I mean, how is a normal yeah. person supposed to know? You don't. You got it. And that's why you've got to go, you know, you know. Uh, Ray did the right thing and called up Bank of America and inquired, right? I mean, he did the right thing. The challenge is this. It's just like, I, I don't know when you move, right? If you've ever moved, you haven't moved in a long time, so this doesn't apply to you. But for those, for everybody that moved, right, or has recently moved, you start getting solicitation from every single landscape company out there, every single dry cleaning company out there, every single pizza company, every single Every single small business within your area is bombing you with solicitation. When you have a baby, same type of thing. You get formula coupons. You get diaper information. You get all of the different – you get furniture solicitation for baby furniture. You get safety equipment to safety-proof your house. It's the same thing, right? When the, when the birth certificate is recorded on a county level – a marketing company is collecting that information from the county because it's all public record and selling it to companies that market to babies. 
when you move, right? There's a change of address. The the new mortgage is is, is recorded. They know it's a new mortgage because you moved or whatever. However, they determine if it's a new mortgage based upon a code at the county level. I don't know, but you're classified as a new homeowner, right? Or when you move into an apartment, the same thing, right? It, it's there. Um, all of a sudden, you start getting bombed with solicitations because these companies collect the information. They're, they're a legal business. They have a right to collect this information. And companies on the backside that sell consumable products or products and services want to get into the hands of those those consumers that either had a baby or moved into a new home and the different services that go with each of those having a baby and moving into a new home. So it's, 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 it's it's capitalism is all I got to say. It's just, you got to be careful of the person or, or the company that you're working with. Ray did the right thing, right? You did the right thing. You called me, you asked me on the radio and hopefully we open the eyes to a lot of our listeners. When a lot of our listeners start refinancing the future to pay off a lot of the debt that they've accumulated, they're going to get bombed with all of this nonsense. And you're going to get one probably if you haven't already buy insurance, right? Mortgage insurance in case you die, it'll pay off your mortgage. You know, I mean, you can buy insurance, it uh, for a meteor falling out of the sky, right? You can buy insurance <laughs> for everything, but do you really need that? Most likely, no. Um, I have a, another thing that I've started doing, and I don't know if it's 100% wise. In addition to this thing I got in the mail and what Ray got in the mail, uh, David, I get texts um, and emails all the time um, you know, your your Amazon Prime um, uh, was um, uh, contaminated and we've shut down your account. Uh, you need to call us uh, your Apple ID. You know, you, you can't ac- access your Apple ID. Um, there's been a problem. Get in touch with us. And the rule of thumb, even though I get this little I get these butterflies in my stomach every time. I figure if it's coming in on a text or an email, it's legitimate or uh, on that 1000th chance that it is legitimate, they will follow up and try to reach out to me a different way. And so I just delete them. And I'm always a little bit frightened. What if this is the one that's real? What if this is the one that's real? Well, again, if if it comes in Amazon special or it could be Cole's credit card, Cole's special. I I bought I bought boxing gloves from Title, right? Title boxing and, and boxing shoes from Title when I work out, when I box, right? So um, I get I get texts from them all the time, right? And then you know you just you just delete it. You just you just got to be careful. It's buyer beware, right? I mean, there's so many consumer protection laws out there, but the consumers got to protect themselves. Okay, and you can't, you've got to be your best advocate when, if you don't see something like an email, when emails come in, don't open up an email that you don't know who the heck it is, especially nowadays. You're going to get solicited for every Tom, Dick, and Harry charity out there. You know, feed the kids, feed the dogs, feed the elephants, feed the gorillas, right? You know, you know, feed the homeless, feed this, feed, all worthy, you know, you know, help educate kids in, 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 in this area, help, help drill wells in in this area, right, in Africa where there's no water, all very, very, very noteworthy 
charities, organizations. You're going to start getting calls from the cops, right? You know, help help fund the cops and all that stuff. All all noteworthy charities. Guess what? If you're charitied out and you give at church and you give to your different organizations, you don't have to respond. You can say thank you very much, right? I I I've I've I've, I've given my allotment to charities. I made, I made the donations that I'm going to make during the years. Thank you very much. And don't open up the email and don't respond to the text and don't open up the text. Do what you did. Swipe left, hit delete, and make it go away. Because once you well, I do button, open up the emails. I don't click on any links, but. I right. do open up the emails to see what they say. And I open it up in my phone, right? I screen it in my phone, then I delete it before I open it up on my computer. That's just what I do. I don't know if it's the right thing to do, but that's what I do. Um, we have but a listen, caller. I, again, I, yeah, go ahead. Who wants to join our conversation about this. Mary Ellen is calling in from Chicago. Go ahead, Mary Hi. Ellen. You're on with me and David Hochberg. Hi. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can hear you just fine. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, I just want to make a couple comments because when you when you were saying, like, what's the average person supposed to do and how do you tell and all that, I just want to say, I, you know, I have some general general rules that I live by that I think there are plenty of, there are a lot of red flags to look for, but just in the most simple basic rule I have is, I don't do business with anyone I have not initiated the contact with, okay? So these cold calls and these cold emails, they can call me up and say, I'm from Microsoft, I'm from here, I'm from there. It's some call center in India or something. You know, I don't do, I just, I simply don't do business unless I initiated the call or I initiated the contact. It's a simple general rule that Mm -hmm. keeps it's safe, okay? Now, if there's something that's really appealing, okay, if an email comes through that looks concerning, because they, they try and get you that way, okay? Oh, they look so real. Yes, and they do, and they co- and that's what scammers do. They're going to copy the, the, the logo for Chase or, or BMO or whatever. They're going to copy that stuff, and they're going to say, oh, it's from, you know, from us. So one thing that I do is always look. They're going to have, like, you know, when you have contacts in your, in your email list, and it might say, you know, Joan's husband or, you know, whatever. And then, but it's really going to say, you know, Ms. <laughs> and uh, gmail.com or something, right? This is actually email address if, if that's what it was. Well, the same thing goes for anything else you're receiving. So it might say they might have like kind of a skeleton name on there that says, you know, like BMO info or BMO sales or something like that. But click the down arrow, click to see the actual email address where it's coming from. And it'll usually have some really funky, you know, email on there. Okay. It's not really coming from there. But even if you thought it was. If it was something of concern, they said, oh, somebody's gotten into your account or there's some security issue, you know, we must contact you. You don't call the number that's in the email. You call the bank, you know, because there are so many, so many scams that are, are, so they are, they're very, they're very um, um, convincing, you know. So, but you initiate the contact. When you reply to an email, you are now in their hands. You're, you're, you know, you're not initiating this. And so don't do anything where you're not initiating the contact. If you do see an attractive offer, don't 
call the number that's on it. You know, look look them up first. You know, we have these smartphones and laptops and everything. Look them up first. Look up the company. Look up, are they licensed? Are they, you know, I mean, even with looking for, uh, you know, services, like you say, about a new home or whatever, whether you're looking for a roof or looking for this, looking for that. You know, you have that at your fingertips to see. Are they licensed mm-hmm. in Illinois? Are they licensed with the Roofers Association? Are they like, you know, there's so much information on our fingertips. There is no reason to fall for this if we just simply initiate the contact on our own or do our own homework. That is such excellent advice. Um, that is the perfect way to handle it. You know, you're not you're not sure this is legit. Don't reply. Um, you know, look up if yep. you hear if somebody is claiming to be from Verizon. Well, you know, I'll just I'll go to my phone and look at the phone number that I have for Verizon and start there. And that makes a lot of sense. Mary Ellen, though, sometimes this smartphone, I find, is in the hands of a very stupid woman. Um, so I work against that. But my but Ray has said that to me before, because I'll be like, oh, my God, Ray, I got this email. And he'll be like, who's it from? And I'll, I'll do exactly what you said. You click and you open up who it's from. And, and then you realize that it's not from um, Amazon. It's from George45 at gmail.com. And then, oh, my exactly. God. Yep. There is. But I will just say that, I mean, it, it is difficult because, you know, we live in a very aggressive society. I had just a, a little bit separate situation just just within the past week where I was infuriated and it's like, who do you complain to when I am very careful about what I have on my laptop? And I literally had, you know, I get these little pop-up messages in the corner. It's usually like, you know, we updated your virus software or something like that. I don't really pay that much attention. I got a, a message that said, we just installed TikTok on your laptop. No, <laughs> I don't want TikTok on my phone or my laptop. I don't oh. want any Chinese code, you know, that can be activated at some future time on my phone or my laptop. And I was furious that I went in immediately and uninstalled it. It was the Microsoft store decided randomly to install TikTok on my laptop when I did not initiate that. Now, who the hell did I complain to? You know, like, yeah. call my, like I like, get frustrated like that, too. David, sometimes there's there's nobody to complain to or the only I hate it when the only uh, you, there's a phone number, but it's only an automated system. And if you have a response like, well, you know, are you calling about this? Well, no, actually, I'm not calling about that. I'm sorry I didn't get that response. Could you try again? Um, you know, it, it, uh, that's one thing I will tell you about David Hochberg. When he gives out a phone number, he's at the other end of it. And that's one thing I love yeah. about you, David. You may, there may be times when you deeply regret that, I would imagine. But, um, <laughs> no, I, no, listen, if, if you're trying to get an answer for a question, right, I might not get back to you. Like in 30 seconds, it might take an hour. You call at the end of the day if I'm tied up. It might be the next day, but you're going to get a call back, right? I mean, it's it's it, it's business, right? You're calling me for a question. I'm in business to answer listeners' questions. If we do a loan for them, great. If the information helps them, great. If the information helps one of their friends, family, coworkers, and neighbors, great. I can't tell you how many times... Somebody said, you helped me out 10 years ago. You spent a ton of time with me on the phone, 
I never forgot it. It really helped me out. It really helped my brother out, my mother, my sister, my brother, whatever. And, you know, it helped me put me in a better position. I listen to you when you're on the radio. The information you, you provide is, is, uh, is very helpful and insightful. And I'm ready now to refinance my home. I'm ready now to buy a mm-hmm. home. Or my daughter or son or my mom needs a reverse mortgage. But, I mean, that's what we do, right? I mean, yep. 23 years doing this, and there's so much misinformation out there. There's so many scam artists like that caller just talked about all of her defensive mechanisms, right? And I give Ray a whole heck of a lot of credit. My God, but that, that gentleman should be... Sainted. I don't know if that's what the right term is for. <laughs> that's very true, but for reasons other than just his advice about scams, <laughs> it Absolutely. might shock you I mean, that I'm guy, not the easiest person in the world to live with. I know that. I know that your jaw is on the floor hearing me say that. Yeah, but, you know, it's that's true. breaking news. So uh, the uh, but you know there are so many different scam artists and people generally right have a very kind heart. And they're always trying to help somebody out. Exactly. When somebody says, hey, I'm calling for help, you know, for my organization. I'm looking for this. I'm like, you know, you know, we're going to feed 40 people. We're going to house 20 people. We're going to provide this service for the dogs that are out in the cold. And, and, it, it, and, and listen, all of that is great. I'm not knocking any of those organizations. But guess what? You, you're sitting there with ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars worth of credit card debt, and you're giving your ten, twenty dollars away to a pro, most likely, if they're calling you out of the blue, a scam artist who's going to mm-hmm. take your money and and run away with it when you could be taking care of yourself and you're the biggest charity that needs to be taken care of with your record credit card debt. And don't be scammed. And the the tips that the previous caller gave are outstanding. And that's yeah. for our listeners and the other tips that you and I both provided in the past half hour are equally outstanding that our listeners need to play defense instead of, you know, going around with their head in the clouds and with their earbuds in and, and thinking like everything is lollipops and candy canes and, uh, and swizzle sticks, you know, it's not. <laughs> so just be careful. David Hochberg and I are going to take a break. We're going to have uh, news, and we will be back with more of your calls, 773-763-9278, and your texts right after this. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I am joined by David Hochberg, who always very graciously answers uh, listeners' questions, whether you text them in or decide to call in and speak to us on the radio. That number is 773-763-9278. If you've never called in before or if you've never texted before and you don't have that number written down, uh, it's easier to remember if you think of it as uh, part of a word, 773-763-WCPT. And David, uh, looking at the text line as we uh, went to break, you know, I'm not the only one uh, who um, has succumbed at least once to scams. I mean, that's something that really hit a nerve. And, you know, yeah. I used to, for a while, I used to think, well, part of the problem is me. Because 
you know, I didn't grow up with all this technology. I didn't grow up with email and all this. So maybe I'm somehow more gullible. But my daughter, who um, is in her 20s and lives in California, she's always sending me screenshots. You know, she gets emails and she gets texts and she goes, is this anything? Is, you know, should I do this? And there has not been one single time where what she sent me was real. So it isn't just a question of, you know, you're old and, and gullible. I mean, this stuff is um, is getting more sophisticated every day. Anyway, um, if you want to call in and talk about that, you still can. But I want to get to some of the things that we didn't get to when um, when David was here last time. One of the texters wanted to know about credit card utilization rates and where you got your information on credit card utilization rates. What does that mean? How often you use your credit card? No, it has to do with the outstanding balance you have on your credit card. So uh, just keep it, you know, the KISS method, keep it simple, stupid, right? You put, let's say you have a $1,000 limit on a credit card and you have Thirty three hundred fifty dollars out on your credit card. You're you're using thirty five percent of the utilization. Okay, okay run that right? by me again. Run that by me again. Give you me those numbers dollar, again. Yep, you got a thousand dollar credit card, right? A credit card with a thousand dollar limit. Right. Okay, and you have three hundred fifty dollars. You made charges of three hundred fifty dollars. Gotcha. Okay, so you've got so there's three hundred fifty dollars worth of charges on there, right? So you've used up. Thirty-five percent of that credit card's limit. Is so that good your or bad? Availability—that's good. You want to keep the availability high by keeping the balances low, right? So you don't want to exceed if you can, right? If that—that's the optimal word. If you can phrase, I mean, if you can, if you can pay your credit cards off every Friday or every time that you use them to get the activity on the credit card but pay it down to under 25%, 30%, that's where you, you get the 25% utilization. That's yeah, you want to keep it, like in this example, on a $1,000 card, you want to keep the balance at 250 to $300. Okay, because once you cross over that 30%, some people say 25 some people say 30 but once you cross over, let's say 25 30%, in this example, 250 or $300 on your credit cards, your utilization decreases because your balance increases. So yeah. as you run out of room on the credit card to charge, your credit scores, it's having a negative impact on your credit profile, and your credit scores are decreasing. Okay, okay so, so you, you have a $1,000 do... line of credit, um, and you buy yep. this fabulous jacket that costs $500. I've crossed yep. some kind of threshold? Yes, you're at 50% capacity now, yeah. Well, it's not so much bad. If listen, if if you're not if you don't plan on buying a car or buying a home or you or applying for credit anytime soon, it's just a way of life, right? But if you plan on <clears throat> leasing or buying a car sometime in the short term, or buying a home or renting a home, and they're going to pull your credit, these are a couple of different things to give yourself a shot of testosterone or a shot of estrogen to get stronger quicker, right? To make your profile stronger 
quicker by paying down your credit cards on a weekly basis. That's why, it, again, if you can, I understand a lot of our listeners are having financial challenges due to the inflation and, and the current job market. I understand that. But the point I'm trying to make is that if you have the ability to pay your credit cards off every Friday or when you get paid, okay, like I've got a, I've got a, I have a, a credit card at Costco, right? A Citibank Costco card because you got to go through Citibank to get the Costco card to buy gas at Costco and to shop at Costco, right? So I get, I, I pay my bill there twice a month. On the 1st and the 16th of the month, or whatever it is, I get the email, we're making a payment, brace for impact, okay? So it gets paid. I just looked at my credit score, it's over 800, right? Because the credit card offers that service that they give you a free credit check. And those are the true credit scores, right? From Costco, uh, from, uh, from Citibank, I think it's uh, Experian or Equifax. So that's what I would recommend that you do. I'm not saying don't go buy, don't go and do, do not buy the coat because you got a great deal on a coat and you want to put a $500 coat, your example, on a $1,000 credit card, great. Okay, just make sure if you can at the end of the month pay it off. If you can pay it off on Friday, right, or when you get paid, even better, right? So that, that's what that's all about. <clears throat> Hello? Oh, shoot. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I was um, sneezing, I so I shut oh, my sorry. mic off. And then when I started talking again, no one could hear me. Isn't it funny how that works? I yeah, am a broadcasting professional. <laughs> All yeah. right. Now that I'm back, we have some callers. Uh, let's go to Steve from Des Plaines, who has a question for you, David. Steve, go ahead. You're on with David. Yeah. Hi, John. Hi, David. Yeah, this is Steve. Um, I'm a, I'm a veteran. I got a couple of questions. I'm a veteran. I've got a, what's called a, uh, the Vietnam era. Uh, uh, it's like a survival pension. I get like 1400 bucks a month. Can I use that mm-hmm. towards a loan? Can I use that maybe as like substance of looking for credit or maybe yeah. trying to buy a home? Absolutely. Okay. It's income. Okay. Any type of, any type of disbursement from the VA. Uh, Social Security, okay. right? If you're getting Social Security disability, as an example, you're getting a VA um, stipend due to some type of injury while served mm-hmm. uh, while serving our country. Absolutely, you get your okay. DD two fourteen form. It clearly states what your uh, benefit is, and you show us the letter that you received from from the VA stating the amount of money that you're going to receive and correspond that, mm-hmm. uh, not correspond, I correlate that with a deposit of that set amount into a bank account mm-hmm. that we could close the loop. That's 100% income for you, soldier, that we could use, or Marine, if you are Marine, um, that we can, um, <laughs> or, you. or, you know, that we could use, or any lender can use to qualify you to purchase home. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very good. Along those same lines, I'm, I'm running a basement apartment in an old rehab, uh, like a frame house. And the landlady has is is, is uh, mentioned that she'd be maybe willing to do a land contract or hold the paper on the house. Uh-huh. Is there a is there a structure, a book, or some sort of format that I could go to learn how to make a, an offer to her? Or what the proper structure of a land contract would be? I, I'm calling it a land contract, but that but there might be another term for this. Where she's going to hold, yeah, it's, she's going to hold the it's, paper. It's, yeah, it's sell, It's called seller financing. Okay, so okay. the seller was is selling you the home, 
Um, okay. I would have a real estate attorney. I have one if you would like me to refer you to one uh, that would okay. review the contract to make sure that, you know, I'm not an attorney either. It doesn't sound like either are you, right? So you want to have nope. <laughs> a real estate attorney, nope. you know, somebody that, that works in this field, review the contract to make sure all the T's are, are crossed, all the I's are dotted, the commas are in the right place, and all that stuff. So the seller, mm-hmm. this nice lady, is going to sell you the home. And you're she's gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna sign a note and a mortgage with that seller, and she's gonna self finance it, and mm-hmm. you know somewhere down the road you could refinance out of it if rates get better, uh, but yeah, it, it's called seller financing. It's 100 percent legal. You just should hire a real estate attorney if you need one. You could give Got me it. a call off air, and I'll be more than happy to connect you with my guy. You know that'd be great. Real quick. I I, I appreciate your time, Joan and uh, uh, David. You know, a thirty-year loan. They say you have to have twenty percent down or whatever. Why? In this day and age, for young people, couldn't why, can't they say like a forty-year loan or maybe a fifty-year loan for a twenty-five-year-old? That would just, sure, that would just open the market so much. I don't know. I'm thinking well, about it, the, 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 that's according to Fannie. Well, well, number one, you don't need twenty percent down to buy a home. Just want to dispel that. Okay. Yeah, uh, veterans right. out there, you qualify for a hundred percent financing. With no private sure, mortgage sure. insurance, if you're a veteran and qualified for the mm-hmm. loan, if you're service connected mm-hmm. disabled, you don't have to you get the funding fee waived. That's part of a VA guaranteed loan. Uh, FHA loans mm-hmm. you could get in with as little as three and a half percent down. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, three percent down. USDA rural loans you get in with no money down, mm-hmm. and you could finance in the closing costs in the loan. And there are special programs that we have. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac offers a 1% down program with no PMI. So mm. um, I, I want to dispel that that comment that you that you made, right? You don't need 20% mm-hmm. down. So there are a lot okay. of low down payment options to help listeners get in. I just want to make sure yeah. other listeners know that. And, and number two, regarding the 40-year mortgage, I will say this. Something will have to be done in the event that home prices continue to go up due to the lack of mm-hmm. inventory. of homeowners uh, own their own home free and clear without a mortgage. And 70% of the homeowners, we've talked about this in nauseam, 70% of the homeowners have rates under 5%. uh, 50% of homeowners have rates under 4%. And 25% of the homeowners have rates under 3%. So we're going to need to see a drastic decrease in the mortgage rates. We've already seen the 30-year fixed decrease one full point mm-hmm. over the past 30 days alone, which has been a huge relief. We still need further decompression in the rates. And I think as we get closer to 5%, you'll start seeing some of those borrowers in the twos and threes leave those homes and finally move south or move into a different home. They don't need as big of a mm-hmm. home. They don't need to pay as much taxes. So as the rates come down, you will see loosening of the inventory and those individuals that have been landlocked because they didn't want to take out a rate in the seven and the eights, take a look at, and the fives and the sixes won't be as scary as a rate in the seven and eights. Plus, another reason is their home will be worth a lot more. So the equity that they're gaining by by just having those low rates is putting a, a, a an upward push on pricing, so they could take that extra that extra equity that they're that they're acquiring because of the market put a larger down payment with a higher rate and their payment will still be susceptible, will still be suitable for them in the new house. Uh, David, you said a few minutes ago, hang on, hang on a second. You, you threw out, Mm -hmm. I think it was PMI. 
What's PMI? Private mortgage insurance. Yeah, what? it's private mortgage insurance. Okay. It's private mortgage insurance. It's it's an insurance that the lenders take out that that buyers get assessed if they don't put down twenty percent down on their home. They're the only one loan that doesn't have it. Are the are the VA loans? The VA loans do not have any PMI on them, and this one percent down loan also. There's special programs if you're in certain income categories and low to moderate income and under certain thresholds. You don't have to pay PMI either if you meet certain thresholds that are too many and too numerous to go over in the short period of time that we have. Okay, Steve. Thank you so much for those questions. I want to get to some of these other calls. Uh, Cindy from Plainfield has a student loan question for you, David. Hey, Cindy, go ahead. You're on the radio. Hi, can you hear me okay? We can hear you wonderfully yep. well. Okay. Hi, David. Hi, Joan. I, Joan, I call you all the time. I'm sorry to be a test. I have a question, though, for David. Um, my son, I'm 63, and my husband is 58. He went back to college as an adult in his late 40s. He got his, whatever you call a four-year degree, and then he went back and got his master's in business. So um, mm-hmm. he did great. It increased his salary significantly, but he did not tell me what kinds of loans he was taking out. He was very cagey about that, throughout that. Um, I have come to find out we have... I know we get dinged for two Navient loans and a Sally May loan. The Sally May loan, I asked him to print it out for me. It's at 12 and a half interest. And sure. I about lost it. That one was 8000 so I paid 4000 on it immediately because he's just been making the minimum payments all these years. And he wants to retire. Yeah. How, I said, how many years has he been with this money? How many years has he been paying? How many years has he been paying on it? He graduated in 2018 with the masters. Now, okay. the other loan I found out about is over sixty thousand dollars, and that yeah. loan is about seven hundred dollars a month on top of the other three loans we're paying. So my question is, would a bank consolidate these four loans or maybe just the two that are at such a high interest rate and let us take out a second mortgage on our house to pay it off? Or would they not allow yeah. something like that? No, absolutely. But before you do that, what does your son do for a living? Her husband. This is my husband. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What does your husband do for a living? He he works in a, a manufacturing plant, and he oversees several of the different warehouses for shipping, and some are out of state. Um, okay. I don't know what his actual position is, like a general warehouse manager or something. Okay. What, the first thing I would do is, is see if you can and consolidate just, the loans. What, David? I missed okay, that. Okay, well, I also she, wanted to tell you that I'm on, disi- I'm on disability. So okay, are the loans in I your name or in his phones. name? Are They're the loans in, in your name or his name? Okay, so his what name. I think you need to do is I, I've, got, I've got a lady by the name of Ray Kaplan. She is an attorney that specializes mm-hmm. in student loan debt consolidation. She is an absolute assassin. Okay. Okay, she will take your liver out, fry it up with onions, and feed it back to you, and you won't even feel the scar. Okay, 
Okay. She is the best okay. in the business that I know. Her office number is 312. What's your name again? Okay. Ray, R-A-E. 312. R-A-E. 312-294-8989. Ray Kaplan. She charges like a couple, 300 bucks for a consultation because she's so busy now. It's, you know, she's she got to take care of her time. But if she could help you and your husband... Right. She she will, mm-hmm. and then she will then roll okay. the consultation costs into the transaction. I don't make any, you know, the, uh, it's just a relationship that I have that I've been fortunate enough. I heard her on the radio. I called her up at lunch, and I'm just like, I could send you a lot of clients. So she's just been an absolute godsend. She for everybody out there, three one two two nine four eighty nine eighty nine. She's amazing. So I would call Ray okay, before I you did anything, taking out, Ooh. yeah. Call Good luck, Ray. 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 So we'll we'll do the analysis for you and point you in the right direction. Okay, Cindy? Thanks okay. for the call, That's Cindy. Awesome. Thank you for your time. Thank you for calling in. I appreciate yep. that. Happy holidays. Um, let's go back to the phones. Troy from Forest Park also has a VA loan question for David. Hey, Troy, you're on with me and hi, David Hochberg. David. Go ahead. Hi, hi, David. Hi, Joan. How are you? Good. Can you hear me okay? What's up? Yes. Yep. Okay, so... Um, I, uh, had my, my first home was a VA loan and, um, I refinanced to a, uh, a conventional FHA loan, I believe, or some other kind of loan. And I bought a second home in the country on the VA loan. I sold that loan. So I'm now, I'm, I'm looking to get out of Cook County. Um, but so I, I'm eligible now for the VA loan again. So I don't understand why on the VA loan are they sticking it to us with a one percent origination fee? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's the. I mean, it do you thank like VA it, for that? Huh? It it's yeah it it's ridiculous, right? It's it's um it's the funding fee that you're talking about, and if you if you used it multiple times, it gets more expensive every time you use it, unless you're service-connected disabled. If you're service-connected disabled, which means you had some type of injury while you were serving our country, and they could connect it to that service, PTSD, Agent Orange, or just a couple of, you know, um, challenges that, that our, our servicemen and women are, are, are overcoming over the years, um, then, and you get rated by the VA with the service veteran officer that writes up the report and sends it into the VA for you. If you're ranked and rated that you're service connected, you don't have to pay those funding fees. If fortunately well, you uh, were not service connected, you, you have, right, then you have to pay well, I mean, the, the, you, you, you have to pay that fee and it goes up the more time to use it. It's, it's, it's ridiculous, but that's just the way VA funds their, funds their loans. But here, I will tell you this. If you're putting, you're putting 20% down, there's really no reason to use a VA loan because the conforming loans rates are similar to the VA rates. And the really only reason you would use a VA loan would be if you're putting zero or, or low, low down payment to avoid the PMI. Does that well, make sense? I owe, I owe about 
$68,000 on my current mortgage in Forest Park. And yep. um, we're looking, we're looking as soon as, you know, we were hoping if I can get, if we can get 250 or whatever we can for our house, I was hoping to move to somewhere and buy something outright. And the more research I've been doing and the more we've been looking, we've been looking to try to get to the Mundelein area or Northwest suburbs to be closer to our sure. uh, grandkids. And, uh, um, um, it, it's looking like that's going to be, it'd be like, however, I'm still going to end up with a mortgage no matter how I look at it. And it's frustrating yeah. as all get up because I, I would have been done and over with if it weren't for the recession and I had to refinance, uh, my, my original mortgage was six and three eighths. I went to refinance right. and I had a $15,000 home equity line of credit. The bank said, Oh, you don't have any more equity in your house. They canceled my whole monthly right. line of credit and made it an installment loan at 9% interest. And then oh. finally, I got Bank of America to refinance. That's four and a quarter percent. Um, nice. And even, even when interest, yeah, so I had or four and a quarter, four and a half, one or the other. I forget exactly which one. But it's there. So that's where I'm at now. And um, I don't know. I'm just looking to try to figure something out. But the one, but I was. You know, my wife, my wife said, she goes, oh, well, you know, we'll just, you know, we won't cost us anything. You know, you need a loan again. I'm like, it's a whole other 1% of, let's just say you buy a $200,000 no, no. house. Yeah. Um, no, David, I, in, in all due you... respect to your wife, yeah, I, I'll call. If you want to give this uh, this uh, uh, serviceman my number, you, if, you, if you're putting that large of a down payment with that much equity in the home that you just said, you, you, you don't need to go with the VA loan. And, and I could run you through the numbers to show you. Um, where you you know where it all shakes out, I'll be more than happy to run the numbers for you. And if you use it, great. If not, at least you'll have the information. Uh, Troy, thank you for that call. We are out of time, but uh, David, I want you to give your number out because we got a text from Judy who wanted to talk to you about refinancing, but her situation uh, is very complicated, and she might have gotten scammed in the process. And I think it's it's definitely more uh, complicated than we have time for. So could uh, Judy yeah. call you? Yeah, absolutely. And, and all your other listeners that have questions. And if Troy wants to run numbers, he could call me as well. I'll be more than happy to uh, Give explain me the it to him again. and his wife why Give you us- don't have to go. Uh, you could, cell phone number 773-456-6526, 773-456-6526. You could also call the uh, 24-hour day, seven days a week answering service, 855-56-DAVID, which is 855-563-2843. Uh, website 56, the number 5, the number 6david.com, and then... You can also email me, david at 56david.com. Okay, well, you're going to be getting a call from Judy uh, about her situation. And also, Kevin from the Chicago suburbs texted in, and he said, talking about scams, one of the things that he does for his grandmother is that he checks her uh, checking account for recurring payments to make sure that there hasn't been some sort of app or something downloaded. And he also looks for recurring charges on her iPhone, which is good advice. David, as always, thank you. We, um, you really help the audience and, um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to solve everybody's troubles. No, thank you for the opportunity to uh, educate and inform your listeners. It's, uh, it's always an honor. I appreciate it.
Okay, take care, my friend. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Big thanks to uh, David Hochberg for being so helpful. Uh, We are going to wrap up today uh, with a conversation with Emily Wheeler. Emily is the program manager at the Lincoln Park Presbyterian Church, and she is someone who has been involved in the front lines of the current migrant crisis and is here to share her story and some of their stories as well. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. You know, um, I have not so much had callers on the air, but I've I've heard from people who've emailed and texted me, you know, why aren't churches stepping up? Why aren't churches doing more? And for the most part, I think that churches have been trying to play a role. Uh, it's just not something that's gotten a lot of attention. So tell me about the Lincoln Park Presbyterian Church and your involvement through that. Yeah, so um, just to clarify, the Lincoln Park Presbyterian Church uh, has been hosting people in their building. Uh, they've been hosting asylum seekers specifically since 2019. Um, they have been a part of a larger collective organization called the Sanctuary Working Group. The Sanctuary Working Group is uh, a grassroots collective of over 44 plus different organizations and faith communities that are all involved in this work. Um, It was established in 2020 uh, to help get people out of detention centers uh, with COVID being, you know, such a, such a danger to people. So uh, it has grown and developed as we have seen uh, this new wave of arrivals here into Chicago and um, the Reverend Beth Brown of Lincoln Park Presbyterian saw the need for the specific niche of helping faith communities get involved in this work and specifically helping people to figure out what it means and what it takes to host people in their actual buildings. So she founded uh, the organization of which I am the program manager. Uh, It is called the Faith Community Initiative. And we are separate from uh, Lincoln Park Presbyterian Church, although we are based out of and under the Lincoln Park Presbyterian Church's umbrella. So we are a completely interfaith, uh, interdenominational organization. We do not only work with churches. We work all across the board and all over Chicagoland. How do you connect with migrants? I mean, in, in the way things are in Chicago right now, I mean, do you, do you go over to the police stations where people are sleeping in the lobbies? Yeah, so we have lots of different points of uh, access and um, connection to uh, the communities here in Chicago of new arrivals. Um, Like I said, we are also a part of this larger collective uh, organization of the Sanctuary Working Group, which uh, shares resources, and um, we talk about the participants in our respective programs. Um, And we get connected with people... um, you know, originally when the Faith Community Initiative was first founded, uh, we were only basing our uh, work out of people who were staying at the police stations. Um, as we have seen, Chicago is, uh, you know, the city has 
given some updates in terms of what they're doing this winter to try and get people out of the cold. So we are also uh, beginning to pivot in terms of focusing on police stations versus focusing on the larger community in general. Um, one of the things that, you know, we base our model on is every faith community that we get into contact with who wants to get involved in this work. Um, we work with them to get their space ready and to figure out the financials and, you know, all the little, little details that go into um, getting ready to host a family for a year or multiple families for a year. So um, in that work, we take whatever neighborhood the faith community is in, we will go to the police station that is the closest in area to those faith communities. And I uh, have relationships with some of the lead volunteers out of the police station response teams that have been taking care of the migrants in those locations. And I communicate with them and basically say, you know, we have this space opening up Here's how many people they can accommodate. And here are, you know, any specific considerations, like they have a lot of stairs or, you know, this location is better for older kids as opposed to younger kids, you know, all of those little details. And then we go from there to determine, you know, who maybe has the the greatest need out of the hundreds of thousands of people that are in the city of Chicago right now. So, um, you know, we, we have such an overwhelming uh, need that it is at this point, you know, we, we get connected with way more families than, than unfortunately than we can help at this time. So, yeah. So the way it works is of a faith community, let's say it's the, I don't know, the Lutheran church of fourth street in um, Waukegan, Illinois. And, and they reach out to you and they say, you know, we, would what we would like to help house some of these people. I assume when we talk about placing the migrants, we're not talking about just um, or maybe we are talking about them existing, you know, rather than a police station, maybe in a church building. Or are you talking about actually placing them in homes? Um, it is uh, primarily the former. So, we, our model is based on a year of uh, support, accompaniment, and housing uh, for families that will be living within the faith community buildings themselves. We do have a couple cases where the faith communities are sponsoring uh, their uh, couple families' rent for uh, the duration. So um, the idea, though, of our program mostly is to eliminate the cost of rent by having people live within the buildings themselves, which for the most part, you know, a lot of faith communities have just a ton of space that is maybe being underutilized or, you know, maybe it, it does get used every week, but only once a week. And mm-hmm. so we have lots of creative solutions that people have come up with to find space in their buildings. Um, but usually people will come to us and say, we really want to get involved. We just don't know how or we just don't know where to begin. And, um, you know, especially we were right now, you mentioned Waukegan. So right now we're we're in this big outreach push to try and get more suburban churches involved because what's happening right now is we have a lot of people in Chicago, the city proper, who want to get involved but don't have the funds to support a family for a year. And so 
because we eliminate the rent cost, we, uh, through our program, we recommend that people support living expenses for the year that they will be housed within that faith community. So that includes groceries, that includes like a CTA card and, you know, a, a cheap cell phone plan. And those living expenses being covered for that year enables people to find a place of financial security and stability where by the end of that year, they're able to then move on into an apartment where they're able to start paying, you know, their own bills and their own rent. And they're, you know, not at risk of getting evicted as soon as a lot of the people that are coming out of the shelters are going to be. Do you have a ballpark for what I know that some families are bigger and some are smaller, but uh, do you have a ballpark that you say, well, you know, you want to take on two families for the next year. Uh, here's the amount of money that we can roughly tell you uh, is going to be your responsibility. Yeah. So our very rough estimate of a budget, you know, like you said, every family is different. Every neighborhood is different. So, you know, costs will vary. But our uh, our generalized, very rough budget that we give people is if you are able to accommodate, let's say, a family of four, then uh, you should expect to be covering about $900 a month in living expenses. And the majority of that does go to groceries. Um, and, you know, certain families are eligible for WIC and LINK and, you know, different benefits through the state. And so, again, costs will vary. But for the most part, um, the year figure that we give people is around $11,000, um, give or take. And that is for a family of four. So, like, you know, obviously there are bigger families, there are smaller families. So it is really a case-by-case basis. But if you are looking to get involved or you think you may know a faith community that uh, is interested in this work, um, we have a huge, huge need right now for financial support. Um, we, our organization runs thanks to a state grant, uh, but, you know, that state grant really only covers our full-time staff and uh, some, some of the expenses of keeping this, keeping this work going. So, um, you know, we, we just want to get as many people involved and housed as we can. So, um, you know, we're just every day taking it step by step. <laughs> Emily, you're talking about um, if, you know, if you're a faith organization or uh, a community group that wants to help in this issue, you know, plan on a year. But from everything I've read about what the city of Chicago is planning with their migrant shelters, they're planning a 60-day stay. How is that going to work, do you think? Oh, that is the question of the hour. <laughs> um, You know, I think that everybody that I have talked to who has been involved in this work for a while uh, is very, very nervous about the 60-day limit that people have been given in these shelters. Um, And that is mainly due to the fact that if you are somebody who is applying for asylum, per se, then that asylum process takes at least 200 days just to get a work permit. So that that is to say that the people who are in these shelters, you know, I I have heard people say to me that, well, they're working, so they should be able to afford, you know, to pay their own rent. But the reality is that when you do not have a work permit, the under the table work that you're able to get is not only very insecure, but it is also very underpaid. 
And Mm -hmm. we've had multiple situations where people, you know, have been doing the work and the boss just refuses to pay them. And, you know, they threaten deportation if, you know, if they give them any trouble. So, you know, I think the the shorter time periods are really indicative of, you know, the city of Chicago is reacting in, uh, you know, emergency response measures when we are, you know, more than a year out at this point, which, you know, a lot of people have been saying that, you know, we need uh, more long-term solutions and, you know, uh, a more looking ahead than has been done at this point, which that being said, I completely understand why the city of Chicago is making these decisions because, you know, we're up against a wall of the snow is coming. The cold is coming. We have thousands of people that have been sleeping outside up until this point who need to be inside or else they will die. So it's a, it's a point where there is still this emergency response that needs to be seen to, but at the same time, that's all we're seeing at this point. So we're seeing these shorter and shorter measures, which, you know, not only did they give the 60 day notice to people who are staying at these shelters, but they have also decreased the rental support through the state. Ida uh, has a program called ACERAP, which is the Asylum Seeker Emergency Rental Assistance Program. And previously they were offering six months of rental assistance. And now they have decreased that to three months. So what we're seeing is people who have been in shelters who thought that they were getting six months of assistance and were about to sign a lease have now been denied because landlords see only three months of verified Mm. rental support and they deny them the lease at all. So now we have people going back to square one where they're still unable to find apartments because the reality is even if you have somebody who, let's say, comes into a shelter, finds consistent work, has an income where they can support themselves, and let's say they do manage to find an apartment and are able to move on. The difficulty is there is such a deficit of affordable housing in Chicago that has been an issue before all these new arrivals came. So we we have had this issue already to deal with, and now what we're coming up against is fewer and fewer and fewer apartments are going to be available to these people. So there's, you know, even if you have somebody who let's say does qualify for the rental assistance has done all the right steps in going through the city shelter program, you know, there's still the issue of finding a landlord that's going to want to rent to somebody who a doesn't have a credit history because people from other countries do not have credit histories like we do. And B that they, you know, they don't necessarily have a pay stub that they can show to a landlord to say, this is how much I'm making. Um, And, you know, on top of that, there's a lot of landlords in the city that are increasingly scared to rent to, to new arrivals, specifically to rent to Venezuelans. There's a lot of, you know, prejudice that is coming into this as well, which is people who have heard horror stories about, you know, tenants that really didn't work out for whatever reason and they're informing their decisions then on those horror stories that they've been hearing. So there's so many different factors at play all at once. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm very nervous for January and what we're going to see once these 60 day notices start to come up. 
Would, would Joe Biden had a I don't know a, some sort of temporary order issued yes. that allowed uh, at least Venezuelan migrants that fell into a certain time frame to be able to get mm-hmm. temporary work permits. Has that yes. helped the situation? Yes. So I will say, you know, I I commend the federal government for taking that step. I will also say that I think that was, uh, you know, kind of the the bare minimum and the starting point of what needed to happen. Um, the what is called TPS, it's the Temporary Protective Status, and that is a federal declar- declaration that is given to different countries based on you know humanitarian crises that are happening that don't necessarily fall under the umbrella of what can be considered a refugee. So the people who have temporary protective status can apply for TPS. And when they apply for TPS, they are then granted uh, a work permit through that program. However, just applying for TPS, it is a $545 fee, including $50 for each additional child or minor that you have under your care. So, the people who are applying, who qualify for TPS, are only Venezuelans who have come into the U.S. prior to July 31st of this year. So those people who do qualify for TPS, not only do they have to figure out the fee, they also have to figure out a lawyer who's going to be able to file those documents for them. So there are so many just incredible, incredible organizations here in Chicago that have been doing a lot of work um, getting people's applications in, getting people's asylum applications in, getting TPS applications in. And, you know, the, the reality is they're just completely overworked at this point because any lawyer who works in Chicago who has any knowledge of immigration law, who is able to you know, either volunteer their services or provide their services through an organization that can do pro bono work, they're completely booked. So if you are a family or an individual who is seeking these services on your own without the help of, you know, an organization like ours, for instance, it is so difficult to even get an appointment. And so, you know, compounding all of these different things is at the shelters, there's a pretty huge inconsistency of the services that are offered. So, you know, there are some amazing groups who are providing social services to uh, shelters and those locations are um, under contract with these different organizations who are doing a lot of the case management, which includes referrals to uh, organizations who can help with the immigration process. But like I said, all of this takes so much time So even if you are one of the few lucky people who are in one of the shelters that has a contracted organization that is helping with the the casework, you are one of thousands of people who is waiting for these services. And when you do get those services, you're then already on a waiting list to get those services anyways. So the 60-day mark is you know, kind of how long it takes to even just get an appointment for a lot of these things. And so, you know, there's also with the TPS applications, there's the $545 fee, which I mentioned, but there is a a fee waiver form that you can fill out. So people who, for instance, are living in a shelter can, can give the proof that they are living in a shelter 
and that will help the fee waiver form so that they don't have to pay that $545 fee. However, that means that the people who are applying for TPS and have that fee waiver form, they have to be in the shelter when they send that application in. And so if they're being kicked out of the shelter or if they are you know, not sure that they're going to be able to stay in the shelter, that compounds things further. So, you know, I, I want to shout out the Resurrection Project, who has been doing incredible work. Um, I want to also shout out NIJC and Centro Romero up here on the north side. They have all been doing just incredible work getting people's applications in and getting these services to people. Um, but I do know that everybody is beyond overworked and just really trying to get as, as much possible done as quickly as possible. Well, Emily, I'm completely blown away by the amount of knowledge you are able to retain in your head. I'm like, this is, well, you know, there's this program, but then they've got to do this. And then there's this, but there's this. And I mean, dear God in heaven, could we make this any more complicated? Yeah. And that's the issue is anybody who is familiar at all with immigration court or immigration law knows that it is difficult on purpose. So, you know, it it's really I have I have found uh in doing this work just how many people in the US have no clue about anything that goes into the immigration process. So, you know, it's 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 really been eye opening in terms of the the general ignorance that is that is around us in terms of our own country's policies um and what it means for for the people who are on the other end of that. What do you think of uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson's idea of these um, supposedly winterized tent cities? Is that viable? Is that better um, than nothing? <laughs> yes, I will say it's better than nothing. Uh, I will also say that from my understanding of the tent, you know, I, I don't want to speak on this as though it, it is fact because I could be wrong about this, but I did read uh, some of the contracts for those tents um, with Garda World. And from my understanding of what I read, the tents are only able to be heated up to 30 degrees, either above or cooled 30 degrees below whatever temperature it is. So for instance, if it's, if it's, if it's zero degrees outside, <laughs> the tents are going to be able to be heated up to a toasty 30 degrees, which you know, again, is better than nothing, but at the same time, Not by you know, much. I do, yeah, I do really worry about their viability. And, you know, I, I know that there are more concerns than just the, the temperature in those tents. There's also lots of other concerns that go into that. Um, but like I said, you know, I do have empathy for the people who are working at the city level, because I know that there's a lot of people with their hearts in the right place, but it's just a lot of difficult decisions being made. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily know if they're the, the right decisions, but I, I do know that, again, there is this uh, kind of time crunch that's happening right now with the winter coming that, you know, yeah. I think that people, people are, are desperate and people are very worried. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, Emily, I'd like to check back in with you in a, in a month or so. And, and um, hopefully you can report on a lot of progress that's been made in this situation. <laughs> I hope so too. I, I hope, hope so too. too. Yeah. Emily Wheeler is the program manager uh, for this migrant program um, that originated with the Lincoln Park Presbyterian Church. 
That's going to do it for me. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is next. I will be here tomorrow at 2 o'clock, but Santita starts our day every day at 6 a.m. Oh, stay safe, stay warm, have a great evening, my friends. Good night. Good night.